ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this online event. Um, my name is Hugh Collins. I'm a professor of commercial law here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure to chair this event entitled Working from Home. And we have uh, a number of panelists um, who will be speaking after I give some introductory remarks, and I will introduce them as we go along. And then at the end, there will be the opportunity to ask questions from uh, of the panelists, all of us, or a particular person. Uh, the way you ask questions is to use the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom uh, screen and pose a question there and they'll be collected together and I will put them to the panelists uh, at the end of the sessions. But first of all, I want to uh, introduce the topic with some broad thematic remarks about the idea of working from home because it's now been suggested and often in the newspapers and so forth that working from home will become the new normal. For those affected, they will remote they will work remotely from home using telecommunications to perform their work. This process had already begun many years ago with teleworking for certain kinds of jobs such as call centers. Um, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, however, following government instructions, most employers have ordered their staff to work from home if they possibly can. Um, although working from home is not practicable for many workers in restaurants and factories, most office work and professional work can be shifted to online remote workstations. In the legal profession, solicitors' firms can perform nearly all their work from home, although some court hearings have had to be heard in person, such as criminal trials. Most civil litigation can be conducted by judges and barristers on Skype and Zoom. This panel is going to reflect very broadly on the legal implications of some of the aspects of working from home. After my personal reflections on the shifting balance of power between capital and labor, uh, Astrid Sanders will consider the application of employment law rights to those working from home. Sarah Trotter will reflect on how the law conceptualizes work in the home. Nicola Lacey will reflect on the alarming, some of the alarming risks of working from home, such as increased domestic violence. And finally, Alice Cars, a barrister and former LLM student at the LSE, will talk about the impact of working from home on the legal profession, particularly barristers, and the delivery of justice in courts. Although I describe working from home as the new normal, in many respects, it's the old normal, if we look back to England two centuries ago, at the beginning of the 19th century, the world described in Jane Austen's novels, the vast majority of people worked from home. Agrarian workers lived in their home village, tending their plots and working in nearby fields. Domestic servants worked within the household. Artisans such as weavers worked in their homes, selling cloths to middlemen to take to market. Retail workers lived above the shop. Work was often a family business with children helping out and wives looking as ever, both after the children and assisting with work. 
the Industrial Revolution disrupted this pattern of most people working from home. The transition was perhaps most clearly marked by the Luddite movement in 1811-1812. The Luddites were skilled weavers in the north of England who objected to the new power looms in factories because they undercut the prices for their work and forced them into low-skilled jobs which were badly paid because they had to compete with child labour. Um, the Luddites protested sometimes violently against this development of factories and mills um, and one of the reasons they protested I think was they could no longer work at home with their families around them at the hours of their choice. They had to work uh, they had to work when the factory opened, they had to arrive on time and they could be summarily dismissed for poor workmanship or even just talking in the factory. In other words, capitalism intensified the subordination of workers and in particular destroyed the moral economy of workers being able to work in their own time at their own pace, integrated into family life. Although the shift from working from home to working in factories, offices and warehouses was dictated by the requirements of economic growth, um, it soon created problems for capitalism, in particular by bringing workers together into workplaces. The opportunity was created for workers to form a more integrated community and to display signs of solidarity. And I want to bring out three things that happened, I think, when we all, work, when we all sent to work in uh, workplaces. First, collective bargaining between trade unions and employers became the principal mechanism for determining the level of wages, hours of work and other working conditions. Effective collective bargaining depended heavily on the workers being assembled in a workplace and developing the solidarity to generate support for industrial action. Secondly, the workplace became a principal site for social integration and the formation of communities. Whilst a person working from home might be isolated or interact only with a small local group of family, servants or neighbours, once they were present in a workplace away from home, workers had to interact with people from different classes, religions and ethnic groups. Third, as a consequence of working away from home, the workplace became a place where people discussed important issues such as politics, the merits of football players or pop groups, the latest fashions in clothes or more personal matters such as health and love. By the water cooler or the coffee dispensing machine, people formed their views, aspirations, loves and hates through social interaction at work. The workplace, even though it might take the form of an autocratic hierarchy became arguably, and I quote here from Cindy Esland, both a direct form of democratic participation and a kind of training for democratic participation in the public political protest. Now we're all being told not to work in the factory or the office, but to work at home. And my concern is what may happen in those circumstances. No doubt many workers may welcome to some extent the restoration of the moral economy of working from home that the Luddites wanted to preserve. I don't detect any desire to smash our laptops or prevent this new way of working. Um, nevertheless, um, 
I think there are some general issues about the relationship between capital and labor that will emerge. First, uh, the dispersal of workers in their own homes will make it much harder for trade unions to organize them, to communicate with them, and to ascertain the problems that workers may be encountering, such as health concerns or unfair discipline. My prediction is that a major shift to working from home will accelerate the long-term decline in trade union membership. Capitalism may therefore have found a solution to the problem of collective resistance to exploitation in the factory and office by sending as many people home as possible. The problem um, then becomes the risk of shirking workers not working when they're at home. Uh, but technology seems to have a solution to that, which is particularly scary, which is um, employers can invest in technology that permits surveillance of workers at home through online monitoring of keyboards, intermittent recording of screenshots, or s literally surveillance of the employee at home through video cameras. I suspect that none of this is lawful. Uh, that is, it's almost certainly an, interf an unjustified interference with the right to respect for private life in Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights, but um, that won't stop it happening. Second, um, uh, working from home will undermine, I think, the integrative effects of bringing people from all classes, religions, ethnic and racial groups under one roof. While sitting at one's desk at home and only communicating through email or video calls, the need to interact with people, to engage in polite conversation, to express empathy and concern seems likely to me to diminish. Uh, the method of remote working encourages the minimization of cooperative working and sharing tasks. Each person just hunkers down and gets on with their job. At virtual meetings, like departmental meetings we've just had, one could be present but not really engage with others in the room. We can mute the mic, turn off the video, behave as if we're not there, not part of a community, not a colleague, let alone a friend. Third, uh, working from home removes one of the main opportunities for workers to engage in discussions of political and social policy with the absence of meeting in person, of movement around a shared workspace, incidental crossing of paths will end up with a diminution of any kind of social interaction. So, uh, in conclusion, if working from home becomes the new normal, there are clearly some potential benefits, but we also risk losing the benefits of physically going to work. Clearly, trade unions will need to adapt quickly by recruiting and staying in touch with their members by methods such as social media and virtual meetings. Um, in particular, social media is needed to perform the role of building social solidarity between employees within the organization. Second, the forced social integration of attendance in the workplace will be lost or diminished so that barriers between different identity groups, whether they be racial, religious, class, gender, etc., will once again be resurrected and people will find it easier to shun those who are different from themselves. And finally, third, the political discourse in a broad sense may become even more like people shouting each other, shouting at each other rather than having exploratory, 
mutually instructive conversations because the opportunities for finding common ground through informal conversations will be absent through work. Not only will we be bowling alone in modern society, but because we will be working remotely, we will be, in effect, Zooming alone, like I am doing now. That uh, I'm not completely alone because I have a brilliant panel that I'd like to introduce. And first, uh, would be Astrid Sanders, my colleague here in the LSE Law Department, professor who specializes mainly in labor law. And she's going to talk to you about the interaction between working from home and some employment rights that employees would normally enjoy in the workplace. So I hand over to you, Astrid. Thank you, Daddy. I thank you very much, Hugh, and good evening to everybody. So uh, my thoughts tonight then relate to the employment law implications of working from home. And in particular, I wanted to speak about the application practically of working time legislation. So namely the working time regulations of 1998 and national minimum wage legislation to people working from home. Now, I am not going to speak tonight about the prior personal scope issue. So while there is no express reference to home workers generally in the working time regulations, unlike in the National Minimum Wage Act of 1998, for example, in UK guidance on telework, which was agreed by the CBI and TUC in 2003, published by the then Department of Trade and Industry, the application of the working time reg regulations to telework is clearly presumed. And with telework, being defined for these purposes as remote working. So my question for tonight is rather how the details of the working time regulations and minimum wage legislation apply to individuals working from home. So first then on the working time regulations. So for those not already aware, the core provisions of the 1998 regulations implementing, of course, the EU's working time directive, include a limit of an average 48 hours working week calculated over a 17 weeks reference period, unless the worker signs the infamous opt-out, as well, daily rest breaks and daily and weekly rest periods, plus, of course, paid annual leave. Now, Regulation 4, subsection 2 of the 1998 regulations requires an employer to take all reasonable steps to ensure that workers do not work more than 48 hours per week on average. And as another example, Regulation 12 states an entitlement that a worker is due a rest break of 20 minutes once they have worked six hours. And the difficulty here, which I wanted to present tonight, is how can an employer ensure that workers are not working excessive hours at home? Or how can an employer positively enable, in the language of recent cases, rest breaks without problematic intrusion and monitoring of the workers' home? So clearly, we want employers to comply with the working time regulations, but at the same time, there are already significant concerns about the privacy of employees working from home. Right, so similarly and second, there might be concerns about the application of minimum wage legislation to persons working from home. 
Now, the legislation here is rather more complicated, so I will need slightly to elaborate. So minimum wage legislation then draws a crucial distinction between working on the one hand and availability to work on the other hand. So if a worker is judged to be working, summarising, they will need to be paid the national minimum wage for all time worked wherever they are. However, if they are deemed only available to work, they do not need to be paid the minimum wage for that time unless they are at or near the employer's premises, unless asleep. And significantly for present purposes, they do not need to be paid the minimum wage uh, for time merely available to work when at home. Now, and once again to emphasise, this only becomes important if the person working from home is judged merely to be available to work rather than working. And on this, we have an early minimum wage case decided by the Court of Appeal back in 2002, holding that when the worker at home is doing the same job as is done at the workplace, this falls into the working category. Now, clearly, that authority will help office workers transferred to remote working during the pandemic, if indeed they are doing the same job. We should, though, note that the Supreme Court heard an appeal back in February of this year on this tricky question of the dividing line between working and availability to work. However, in relation to sleepovers and moreover sleepovers at the place of work. And this is the Royal Mencap Society case. So here, the Court of Appeal had disapproved of the Employment Appeal Tribunal's previous multifactorial approach to distinguishing between working and availability to work, which had taken into account, for example, the degree of obligation upon the worker and the immediacy of the requirement to respond. So presumably, or maybe I should say, hopefully, when the Supreme Court finally provides its judgment in MENCAP, its guidance on the dividing line between working and availability to work will hopefully apply more generally rather than be limited simply to the matter of sleepovers. Right. And on my question then about how working time legislation and minimum wage legislation applies specifically to those working from home, I went back for these purposes to look at the EU level framework agreement on teleworking, which was initially agreed by the EU social partners in 2002 to see if this would shed any light. Now, once again, telework is defined for these purposes as working remotely. And in the UK, this was implemented via guidance published by the DTI back in 2003. And various concerns are dealt with thematically in the framework agreement and in the UK guidance. So on scope, on the voluntary character of telework, on employment conditions, where it is stated that these should be comparable to those working at the employer's premises, on data protection, on privacy, on equipment, on health and safety, on organisation of work and on training. Now, reading this guidance back then, I find it interesting that the UK guidance states, and I quote, greater flexibility 
within the limits of the working time regulations may be possible, perhaps with a set core time when remote workers undertake to be working or to be contactable. That's the end of that quote. And then the UK guidance twice mentions this idea of greater flexibility of working time for those working remotely, with the suggestion therein that each employer should have a conversation with the worker to establish when they are expected to be working and possibly more importantly, when they should not be contacted. And interestingly, this long predates more recent debates about whether there ought to be a new statutory right for workers to disconnect. Now, the framework agreement itself states on working time, the teleworker manages the organisation of their working time. And that is repeated verbatim in the UK guidance. Now, while this might sound a benefit to the person currently working from home, who may be also juggling childcare or other caring responsibilities, for example, and who may consequently desire more flexibility in their hours, the risk of this potentially, um, from my view, is whether this idea could possibly push more employees and workers into the category of unmeasured working time under Regulation 20 of the Working Time Regulations of 1998, which is dangerous as it, is, as it essentially takes the worker out of most of the working time regulations, but without the need for agreement, unlike the opt-out. Then my other impression, looking afresh at the framework agreement on teleworking and the consequent UK guidance, is the lack of detail. So there is nothing in these documents about my questions as to rest breaks, or as to how the employer can ensure workers are not working excessive hours, however, without intruding on the workers' privacy. The framework agreement states that any monitoring of employees working from home should be proportionate, but provides very little guidance beyond this. And then my final thoughts for tonight relate, though, to those not working from home. So during the pandemic, and particularly during lockdowns, there might be a new divide in the working population between those who have transferred to remote working versus workers whose jobs are not deemed transferable and who have continued physically to go into work. Now, there are special provisions in the working time regulations for night workers on the basis that this type of work is deemed more dangerous. There's also a provision in the working time regulations mentioning special protection for monotonous work, albeit it is not clear what this provision adds practically. So for NHS workers, for supermarket workers, for construction workers, for school teachers and so forth, our concern must additionally be with what else those workers need in terms of employment or working time protections. And that's me finished. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Astrid. That, that's great. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions about that. Um, now I turn to uh, another colleague, uh, Sarah Trotter, um, another professor in the LSE Law Department who, whose expertise lies in family law and human rights law. Uh, we had a good conversation uh, last summer about this topic and uh, she pointed out that uh, 
lots of people work from home and have always done so, though they're not necessarily paid. And some of those thoughts, I think she's now going to uh, deliver to you. So Sarah, over to you. Thank you very much, Hugh, and hello, everyone. So one of the things that is and has been particularly notable about the way in which the concept of working from home has been constructed in public discourse in this period is the way in which it seems to be primarily focused on the relocation of work that was formerly or is usually done outside of the home into the home. And of course, there has been a massive shift in that respect, albeit one that's predominantly confined to occupations that provide for that possibility and therefore confined to those who are engaged in those forms of work. Accompanying that shift has been a debate about the short term and longer term implications and repercussions of this at multiple levels, including in relation to individual workers, households, workplaces and local and regional communities. We've seen in relation to London, for example, debates about the effects of this move to working from home on the city itself. And indeed, the ONS data on home working and coronavirus from April indicates regional variation in this respect. So in the first full month of the first lockdown, for example, London residents were more likely to be doing some work from home than residents in other regions of the UK were. But even bearing in mind that shift that's occurred in practice, a shift that's reflected in the way in which the concept of, home, of working from home is mostly being used, it's nevertheless worth reflecting a little on the concept of working from home itself. And especially notable in that respect, I think, are the assumptions that underpin this concept. These include the assumption that people's homes are conducive to doing the work that they need to do, and also that we're talking here about one's own work in one's own home. In relation to the latter, it's important to note the fact that, of course, the homes of some are the workplaces of others. And for many paid domestic workers, the effects of the pandemic and its associated crises have exacerbated pre-existing legal vulnerabilities. In addition to these two assumptions, the concept of working from home in its current sense seems to fundamentally rest on the notion that the categories of work and home are in some way conceivably distinct, albeit that they're blurred in this specific context. For some, of course, they are distinct categories. And one of the challenges presented by these past few months for those working from home in this current sense is precisely the blurring of the spatial, temporal and psychological boundaries of work and home that this involves. Working from home in this way raises questions about how we relate to home when it becomes a place of work and also about how we relate to work in our workplaces when that work is taking place at home and indeed when our workplaces are entering our homes via technologies such as Zoom. But what I wanted to do in my contribution on this panel was to reflect on and challenge a little further this notion of a distinction between work and home and to do so by reference to work that has always been carried out in the home, namely unpaid domestic work and care work. What I mean by unpaid domestic and or other family members. In many ways, the concept of working from home itself risks obscuring this work in the distinction that it implies between work and home. And if it doesn't risk obscuring it, then it risks subsuming it within the home dimension of working from home. And of course, we know that forms of work subsumed within the sphere of the home were historically and are still often legally invisible. Or if they're not legally invisible, then they're lacking in legal regulation and recognition. So I'm going to say something about what's happened to unpaid domestic work and care work in this period. And we can then perhaps use that to think about the ways in which these forms of work raise questions about the concept of working from home itself, including further legal implications in this context. At the outset of the pandemic, concerns were voiced about its gendered impacts on multiple fronts, including in relation to unpaid care and domestic work, which I'm going to briefly mention, and domestic abuse, which Nikki Lacey is going to talk about. 
The context in which the pandemic hit in this respect was already one in which there was an unequal division of unpaid care work and domestic work going on. Globally, women and girls do 75% of the total amount of unpaid care work and domestic work in their homes and communities. And across the EU, women do on average 13 hours more of unpaid care and domestic work every week than men. And it's worth emphasising from the outset, I think, the nature of the work that we're talking about here. It's work that supports, enables and constitutes daily life. It's work that the wider economy depends on, but that is often ignored and overlooked. The gaps and asymmetries that exist in relation to it are also inseparable from broader inequalities in relation to participation in the job market, including the gender pay gap. When coronavirus restrictions and lockdowns were introduced, many workplaces, schools and nurseries were closed, of course. Cross-household contact was restricted and family members from other households who may have ordinarily taken on a role in relation to childcare were no longer able to do so. I'm thinking here particularly of grandparents, um, 40% of whom in the UK are known to normally provide regular childcare, which is an essentially significant form of support where it's available when it comes to maternal employment in the context of low income and single parent families. For many, restrictions and lockdowns meant that the home suddenly became a site of even more forms of work than before. Paid work, voluntary work, homeschooling, domestic work and care work. As Lynn Craig puts it in her research in relation to the Australian restrictions in this context, with a general shift of people back into the home, a gendered fault line was suddenly removed by lockdown restrictions. And the possibility was opened up for a shift in gender roles and a more equal division of domestic work and care work. So the question is, well, what happened in this context? The emerging evidence indicates that pre-existing and gendered patterns of care work and domestic work have mostly continued throughout this period, with indications also that the effects of school and nursery closures, including homeschooling, have fallen mostly on women. Esuna de Gorova, in a paper that examines the evidence on this subject, notes the potential that the context has presented for a redistribution of work, pointing out that working from home measures have exposed many more to the double burden of this work. And this is reflected to a degree in some of the evidence that indicates the emergence of slightly more egalitarian trends in relation to childcare, including a slight narrowing of the gender childcare gap on some accounts. But overall, it seems that care work has continued to fall primarily to women in this context. And of course, it's fallen to different women and differently positioned women in different ways. Single parent families, for example, who make up nearly a quarter of families with dependent children in the UK, and most of whom are single mother families, have faced particular challenges and pressures, including in relation to balancing work and caring responsibilities. I wanted to highlight here the role of the eventual and gradual move of coronavirus regulations across the UK to permit for support bubbles or linked or extended households as they're now legally known. When this finally did happen, it represented a notable recognition and reflection of the significance of the care and support that goes on across households and the way in which caring relationships are not confined to households, let alone present in every household. And I'm sure this is something we'll come back to shortly in relation to domestic abuse. As we know, this permission to constitute support bubbles or linked households was an especially important development for those living alone or as single parents. And I think it's worth going back on that note to the point that Hugh was making about workplace interaction and the loss of the informal forms of workplace interaction that accompanied this shift to working from home. Because for those living alone and working from home in this context, this loss of workplace interaction may also have represented the loss of a primary form of interaction. And the possibility of support bubbles and linked households in that sense was a vital development. 
So to sum up, I think with unpaid care work and domestic work, there are two things I'd really like to emphasize. There's firstly a point to be made about the concept of working from home itself. And this is that unpaid care work and domestic work has always gone on in the home. And indeed, it enables and underpins the relocation of paid work into the home. It creates the home in which other forms of work can occur. And it may be, though we'll have to wait and see about this, that in the context of the pandemic, this reality, which is primarily a reality of inequality, has acquired greater visibility, both within households, but also within workplace structures. The second point I've made is about care. And there are two questions I'd like to highlight here in terms of legal implications. The first is of whether various forms of unpaid care work will acquire greater legal recognition as a result of what's happened. And in particular, as a result of the greater visibility of care work in this period, and also the rise in unpaid carers that's been recorded by care charities. The second question is of whether what's happened this year will spur on debates about, or indeed bring about, greater legal recognition within the realm of family law, for instance, of relationships that aren't really legally recognized or engaged with. And I'm thinking here in particular about friendships, caring relationships across households, or indeed relationships between couples who aren't married or civilly partnered and who don't live together. The concept of the support bubble and the legal notions of linked households and extended households represent an interesting legal development in that respect. And it'll be interesting to see what happens here as we continue on into the new normal. So I think I'll leave it there and I look forward to coming back to these themes in the Q&A. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Sarah. Lots for us to think about there. Yes, the uh, support bubble is a new legal concept. I'll get my head around that soon. Brilliant. Um, now we move swiftly then to uh, Professor Nicola Lacey, another colleague in the LSE Law Department, uh, uh, well known for her work in legal theory and criminal law, uh, particularly and her well-known biography of HLA Hart, uh, but I don't think she's going to be talking jurisprudence today. I think it's rather more about some of the criminal law dimensions uh, that have arisen in connection with working from home. So I hand over to you, Nikki. Thank you very much, Hugh, and hello, everyone. I'm very, very glad to be talking on this on this panel and about this, um, this problem that I'm addressing, which, of course, sadly, predates not only the the pandemic, but capitalism itself, the long-standing issue of violence against women and girls, and indeed violence against vulnerable groups more generally. But there is a particular issue about violence against women and girls, and that's what I'm going to concentrate on. Um, really a situation in which, uh, in the context of the pandemic, the home becomes not only your workplace, but a crime scene, and indeed for many women, a prison. And, and that, uh, that sounds hyperbolic, but that is really uh, not uh, unfair, as I think I will, as I shall try to show you. And really, the sort of underlying theme here that I'm going to be pushing is very, very similar to, to, to the point Sarah was making, which is that what's happened in this area is that it was a, a, an area already on the eve of the pandemic marked by gross and longstanding social inequality in this case on gender lines but also on lines of economic advantage and that these have been massively exacerbated by the restrictions attendant on the pandemic and, and that is really the, the headline that I'm going to give you some details and I'm really going to make 
four sorts of points. First of all, I'll just give you some headlines, really, in uh, legal changes and reforms in this area in the last decade or so. And as we'll see, it's actually an area in which there's been quite a lot of activity. Um, secondly, I'll just give you the main headlines on where we were on the eve of the pandemic in the wake of those various legal changes and, of course, the long-standing criminal law provision, because domestic abuse has not recently become a crime. It's always become a crime. It's always been a crime. It's a you know, general one of the offences against the person. Um, but so we so we need to see where we were up to at the on the eve of the pandemic. Um, then I will say a little bit about what we know, and we don't know everything, but we know a bit about what's happened since the first lockdown. And then finally, I'll see if I can think of something positive to say about what what needs to happen next, what could make things better. So. As I've mentioned first, you know, law reform in this area, I'm a criminal lawyer, I'd like to be able to tell you that things have got better. And indeed, I can tell you that in some ways things have got better. A decade or so ago, the provocation defence was abolished in favour of a loss of control defence, which was partly conceived in the light of debates about women of uh, availing themselves of the provocation defence. Um, since then, more recently in December 2015, for the first time, coercive or controlling behaviour was made punishable, quite a serious offence with up to five years in prison. Um, in, uh, also in 2017, the Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence Ratification of Convention Act, a mouthful if ever there was one, was passed simply to ratify the long-standing Istanbul Convention on Com Combating uh, Violence Against Women. Um, in that later that year, the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice launched a consultation on domestic abuse, following on from its earlier ending violence against women and girls strategy. That was followed by uh, the publication of a domestic abuse bill, which is actually still sort of it's had a very checkered parliamentary history, but it's now awaiting its second reading uh, before the House of Lords. Um, uh, but some of the headlines in this bill, um, it defines domestic abuse, it um, preserves a recognition of the need for multi-agency coordination, it says lots of sensible things about that, uh, it bars the cross-examination of victims by their abusers, it uh, pro uh, provides for the appointment, and this has actually happened, of an independent domestic abuse commissioner to tackle the issues across government, it institutes protection orders, compelling offenders to take rehabilitation programmes, and it poses a new duty on councils, local councils, local authorities, to provide secure accommodation for those experiencing domestic abuse. That all sounds uh, pretty good, doesn't it? Um, so the... Um, on top of that, we have uh, the, the commissioner saying a lot of right-minded things already. She's only just been appointed, but she's already talking about difficulties in the area and how she really wants to make progress. And in fact, uh, the bill is not in its absolutely final form yet. And one of the interesting uh, reform proposals that may well get debated in the House of Lords is a proposal to do another thing that we feminist criminal lawyers have been arguing for for 
some, which is to look again at the requirements for the self-defence defence in relation to women who are attacked, subject to violence in their own homes and see whether the requirements, particularly the requirement about the immediacy with which a defensive reaction follows on an attack should be moderated somewhat in those circumstances. So those are all quite substantial by criminal law reform standards, reforms of the criminal law just in the last decade. Um, and yet, now I move to my second point, where were we on the eve of the pandemic and we weren't we weren't in a good place at all perhaps that's not surprising and of course it's very difficult to draw causal links clear social science causal links between background cultural factors and concrete outcomes or lack of outcomes in the criminal justice system but you know i note that we still live in a country where we seem to take it or the news media seem to take it as normal that we celebrate the lives of men who are have had great achievements in fields like the arts or sport but who are known to have either uh, engaged in domestic violence or condoned domestic violence or both um, so that does seem to me to be a relevant background fact However, let me cut right to the chase in terms of uh, some, some statistics. The real issue here, of course, is not the law. It's the enforcement of the law. It's the law working. It's what we in the legal academy call a socio-legal problem. And it's a very good illustration of why knowing the law is not enough, even for lawyers. We need to understand how the law is interpreted, how it can be invoked, how it can have effects in the world. Now, one of the important facts that we know from um, uh, estimates in the official statistics is that uh, uh, about 83% of victims of domestic abuse uh, do not report it. That's estimated by comparing what we know from the Crime Survey of England and Wales, which is probably our best evidence, as compared with uh, crime that is actually recorded by the police. And that suggests that like, 80%, four out of five women who suffer domestic abuse do not report it. But is this only a problem about women not reporting? I mean, that's obviously a major problem. We need to know for a start why women aren't reporting it. Is it that they don't have other alternatives? Uh, is it they don't have enough support or resources to know that they can leave the dangerous home? Or is it possibly in addition to that, that they don't think they'll be believed that they won't get the help or belief that they uh, might expect from the police. And um, I think, unfortunately, there is evidence to that effect as well. If we look at the uh, latest femicide uh, census, a very, very important piece of work done by, you know, a, a voluntary organisation, because we one problem here is we don't know as much as we need to know to tackle the problem. The fem latest femicide census shows that Seven in 10 of the women killed by men uh, over the last uh, period of reporting had 
made some kind of public disclosure of the abuse. They had tried to do something about it, whether by contacting their local authority or a charity or the police. So this is not just an issue of women not reporting it, but even to the extent that it is an issue of women not reporting it, there is a real problem then about whether it gets taken up and why why they're not uh, getting taken up. Um, if we look at the evidence in, uh, from the crime survey of England and Wales, we, we know, by the way, that the recorded crime is a very poor indicator of domestic violence, obviously, if, if, if 80 odd percent of uh, victims aren't reporting it, so, uh, then we, the recorded uh, stats aren't going to be very reliable. But they do give us a sense of the trend. And they show actually quite a big increase in the in the latter part of the 2010s uh, and that is almost certainly because there were efforts being put in at a political level to try to raise the profile of domestic violence and encourage those subjected to it to do something about it to encourage them to believe that they would be believed and taken seriously um, but if we look at the crime survey England and Wales, which gives us a more accurate sense, we can see that notwithstanding that modest success in encouraging women to report this offence, um, nonetheless, uh, the, the crime survey estimated that 2 million adults aged between 16 to 59 experienced domestic abuse. This is in the year ending March 2018. That, that equates, by the way, to about six in every 100 adults in the UK. I mean, that is the most shocking statistic. And that is, doesn't include children who we also know to be overrepresented in these statistics. So these are truly shocking numbers. We are not talking about a marginal problem here. On the eve of the pandemic, domestic abuse, notwithstanding all these legislative and political efforts and a lot of noise about it, notwithstanding the efforts of many, many charities, was it was already very, very bad. Um, by the way, though, the political attention was not always uh, very consistent uh, during this same period in which we had this big uh, political strategy about tackling violence against women and girls. It was also, of course, the era in which we were, this governments were busy cutting legal aid. And um, they actually, over one period post the, uh, the relevant legislation, they cut legal aid for victims of domestic abuse. So they, they reversed that terrible policy error in 2017. But uh, nonetheless, even the fact that it was done, it shows you how that the, the attention to this is, is intermittent in government, is not complete. But of course, the headline problem running up to the eve of the pandemic, as in so many other areas, including the one Sarah was talking about, is austerity politics. It's the massive swinging cuts to public spending, uh, to the provision of support services, not only uh, directly for domestic abuse, but also the, uh, the secondary uh, effects of cuts to uh, youth services and so on and so forth. So the, the, the cuts to both local authorities and the cuts to the Ministry of Justice, which have made for greater delays in the criminal justice system and so on, are all very, very bad news in terms of the efficacy of the law in this and indeed in other areas but particularly in this area 
So that's where we were uh, on the eve of the pandemic. Now, I'm not going to talk for very long about the effect of the pandemic uh, for two reasons. One um, is that we actually don't know a lot yet. Um, and number two is that I'm not a psychologist and um, really understanding exactly what the impact of lockdowns, of increased economic anxiety uh, will have been. But I mean, you know, maybe we don't need to be psychologists to understand that if you find yourself, you know, perhaps in a relationship that's already uh, had some violence in it, um, you then find yourself stuck at home with your partner, stuck at home, possibly with one or more children stuck at home. Uh, we have already heard about the unequal gender division of labour in the home. Uh, you are trying to homeschool your children if you have any, or keep them safe if they're preschool age, uh, do your unfair share of the domestic labour. And your partner may well be massively frustrated, anxious, and add on top of that socioeconomic inequality, this is going to hit everybody badly. It's especially going to hit you badly if you live in crowded accommodation without easy access to pleasant, safe, open spaces. Put all that together, it's a pressure cooker, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's really not surprising if domestic abuse has increased during the pandemic. And what we know about it, which really mainly comes through uh, evidence to the Home Affairs uh, Select Committee from the charities in this area. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that the evidence was from charities, not from the government, um, that uh, the economic impact, the impact of the pandemic has been particularly bad, that the, as measured by calls to refuges and other support uh, uh, outlets in local uh, local government or charities, um, there has been a, a huge in increase. And um, of course, imagine you've got no escape route, you've got no escape route, you're probably massively poorer than you were at the beginning of the pandemic. You may not even be able to get the material benefits uh, together. And then you've got to deal with the pre-existing, as the, the domestic abuse commissioner herself put it, post-code lottery in the provision of services exacerbated by austerity. This is uh, toxic. What do we need to do is my final point. I'm sorry, I've spoken for too long, but um, we need better data. We need better information. Um, there has been some improvement on that. We need better information still. We need, most of all, much, much better resources. We need proper refuges. We need, uh, you know, we have some, we don't have enough. Uh, we haven't seen any big increase in the provision of ref refuges. Um, we need resources in local, local government and local services we, who are likely to be easier for women to reach. We need to have safe places for women to go in order if they're going to be able to escape with their children. Um, and uh, let me just leave you with one material uh, fact, which I think gives you a sense that there's still a lot of work to do to get this problem taken seriously, whatever, you know, I, I wish the new commissioner very well, but she's going to have to uh, deal with a political context in which the violence against women's strategy and consultation itself had a solution, uh, which hasn't been implemented yet, of 
a duck strategy, multi-agency strategy, all the right things. But what was the funding? It was a million pounds for six local areas. It's nothing. It's nothing. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki. That was uh, a bit shocking, really, but um, it uh, was very interesting. And uh, particularly the statistics, I don't think I've studied those before. Um, so I hope there'll be some more questions on that. Uh, but finally, we have our last speaker, um, Alice Cars, who's um, a barrister at Devereux Chambers and an alumnus from. Uh, LSE and she also studied law at Oxford and um, I spoke to her during the summer and she was telling me how um, how life was at the bar uh, uh, which was um, not uh, a, a prosperous place to be working it must be said at that time but she also had many other insights into what was happening so I thought particularly any law students present would find her contribution especially interesting so over to you Alice thank you thank you Hugh uh, thanks everybody it's a pleasure to join such an eminent panel so uh, just to introduce myself I'd practice employment and insurance law uh, before COVID-19 I was in court or tribunal about two or three days a week I would usually work about two days a week in chambers and perhaps one at home uh, this has changed drastically I've not worked in chambers since the 5th of March, and I've not been into a courtroom since the 6th of March. Uh, since then, I have done all of my work from home. Before and immediately after the national lockdown started on the 23rd of March, almost all of my hearings were cancelled, apart from some which were made into short telephone hearings where arrangement would, would be made to vacate that hearing and move it till later in the year. Of course, at that point, nobody knew how long the lockdown measures would be or how long the health crisis would continue. And nobody knew what the long term impact on the court system would be. So as barristers watched the trials disappear from our diaries, all we could do was wonder when they would be heard. And I remember back in March, one colleague said that he thought that they would uh, be back in court in the end of May. And another said October. Uh, as things currently stand, the, my return to a physical courtroom will be the week before Christmas. Uh, my experience since Martin run fairly. Uh, for example, I attended a costs and case management hearing in the High Court. And that, that hearing is used to prepare the case for trial and to set cost budgets, which involves parties poring over Excel spreadsheets. Usually these hearings take place in person. The case went ahead by telephone and took three hours. It was awkward not being able to see the judge or my opponent. And it just everything took a lot longer than it would usually do because the judge kept saying to both parties, have you said what you need to say on that point? However, we did cover everything and it was pleasing for us all to work together and make sure that the hearing did exactly what it needed to do. Since then, I've attended the employment tribunals by video. I've appeared as junior in the Court of Appeal by video. I've responded to an application for an interim injunction in the High Court by video. I've done numerous telephone hearings. 
in all of these scenarios, it's been important for the legal representatives and parties to communicate with each other and make sure everybody's got the correct dial-in details or the email link for joining the video conference. At first, I was slightly hesitant about using video for hearings, but I have found that it can work well, even with witnesses. And I'll come on to that in a moment. It is, of course, not always the case that video hearings are appropriate. Some litigants do not have the IT resources or the space or quiet environment at home that's suitable for attending a hearing by video or telephone. Some hearings are now taking place in person and sometimes litigants will ask the court if their hearing can be conducted in this way, just as some people will want to attend by phone or video because of concerns or difficulties about intending, attending in person. In my view, this shows this one of the strengths of our justice system, which is the courts and parties working together to make suitable arrangements. I have attended hearings by Teams, Zoom, Skype, the court service cloud video platform, and last week, a new online hearing platform, which is in beta version and being trialed, which I used for a three-day hearing in the first tier tribunal. The online hearings team from the court service arranged a test call for everybody and they were incredibly helpful in making sure that everybody knew uh, what they had to do to attend. At the hearing, the parties log on to a virtual homepage and the hearing is then started by the judge who takes all the attendees into a virtual hearing room. The only functions once you're in that room are mute, and raise hand, there's no chat box. The witnesses gave their evidence uh, and were sworn in by the judge and questioned by counsel in the usual way. The screen showed the witness and the questioner in two large boxes with everybody else in smaller grid form in their videos below. It did work well, even if it was strange not to see the witness live as you would in a courtroom. Uh, for me, the big advantage of a video hearing was the fact that the parties could email documents to each other and the judge. So you could immediately share something without the most junior person in the room being sent out to locate a photocopier and route around for some spare change. It is strange not having your solicitor with you when you're in court to take immediate instructions, um, but having to wait for them to come over by email. Likewise, it's not, it is strange not to meet with your clients before and after court or to have that period of travel from home to court where you go from home mode to work mode. Outside of the courtroom, conferences with clients have continued by video call. I personally much prefer this. It feels more collaborative and it makes working with a large team more effective. The Inns of Court are running their training sessions by video, including my Inn, Gray's Inn. I've done two Q&A sessions with students by video, and in the new year, I shall be part of a speed pupillage application session, where I shall meet a number of students applying for pupillage by video and give advice on their application forms. Chambers Life has carried on, but by video. Uh, in Chambers, we've all been mindful of the fact that without being in the building, there are limited opportunities to run through difficult points with colleagues. And there's limited opportunities to chat through cases with a colleague after court so as to avoid inflicting your war stories on your family and friends. We have taken care to be available to one another and we do this as best we can. And we also have weekly 
now fortnightly Zoom calls to which all members of chambers are invited. So every barrister has a different experience of working during the pandemic. Many lost a lot of court work and many parties have lost their days in court um, due to delay. But our legal system is old and resilient and everybody in it is able to adapt to change. In my experience, uh, really the positive is that the court service, lawyers, judges and parties have all worked together uh, to get trials up and running again because we know how important it is for people to have their disputes adjudicated speedily and fairly. And as everybody, and not just those of us in the legal system, have got used to video calls, we've got better at using them for work. I do, however, agree with Hugh on the benefits of interacting with others at court and colleagues at work. And whilst this year I have learned to work from home, from my point of view, I'm looking forward to stepping away from my webcam and back into a courtroom. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Alice. Well, it's, it sounds like the, something's happening in the courts, though it's certainly been very disruptive for the bar. And I know in solicitors' firms, their offices have been closed most of the last year, uh, but they seem to be able to work quite well, uh, effectively, providing their services, though there's less demand for them. Now, um, we've now got a chance to do uh, a question and answer session, and I can see that a number of people have sent in some questions, um, and uh, but on very different sorts of topics. So um, I think uh, I think first one I want to pick out. There's there are some overlapping questions I can read. So the first one uh, I want to pick out would be for you, Nikki. I think uh, maybe Sarah, which is. Um, about um, it's the question is about male victims of domestic violence and uh, whether there's uh, uh, what what you know about that and uh, what uh, what shelters or safeguards might be introduced for them. Uh, that makes sense. Yes, I, I'm happy to take that that question or unhappy because all this is a rather miserable topic, isn't it? But, I mean, I, I, I think I was careful at the, the beginning of my remarks to acknowledge that uh, basically vulnerable people are, are vulnerable, liable to be victims of, of domestic violence, and that includes men. Um, the best evidence we have, and it's not absolutely watertight, but it is strong evidence, is that it's about two to one. It's about two into every male victim and that's why I concentrated on women I don't make any apology for that but I'd very much like to acknowledge that it's a real problem where you're in a minority uh, in any category for which public provision is needed and um, this is a problem for women on the receiving end of criminal justice where we are happily a very small minority but that means that there are if you're a woman in prison, you'll likely be further away from home. Uh, there are likely to be a fewer different kinds of regimes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's never a good thing to be in a, a sort of minority overlooked group, particularly in an area like this where there isn't enough provision anyway. And for fairly obvious reasons, such provision as there is, is gender separated. Um, I don't personally know if there are um, any 
refuges for, for men. I imagine there are provisions for men, but I would also imagine that they might well be yet more inadequate than provisions for women. But the, I, I do think we shouldn't forget that this is disproportionately a problem for women and children. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, we've got a collection of questions which are, I think, more aimed at Astrid than myself, probably, about um, wage cuts. Um, so, um, so, in the context of people working from home, the suggestion that's been reported in the press is that employers may take this opportunity to, uh, as it were, renegotiate the wages of individual workers. One possibility uh, might be to do what Mark Zuckerberg has reported of doing, which is to say, well, if you're working from home and you live in a cheap area where the rents are low and the food is cheap and so on, then I can pay you less because you don't need to come into the big city. Uh, another reason might be to, because you no longer have commuting costs, uh, I can pay you less, uh, your real wages will be. And then there's a someone for Tess McGovern has said, Deutsche Bank recently proposed that a 5% tax be levied on workers who elect to work from home. Um, the money raised from such an initiative it suggested will be used to support low earning workers or those at risk of redundancy. So there's a number of questions here about um, the, I think the legality really of uh, these attempts to impose unilateral wage cuts um, uh, using the working from home as a kind of excuse um, in order to achieve that. I don't know if I, I haven't heard of this myself, but Ast Astrid, do, have you, do you want to say anything about that? Uh, uh, we've got to unmute Astrid. Okay. Yep. Can you hear me again now? Yep. Um, I suppose it will depend, won't it, if there's a unilateral variation clause in the contract or not, because otherwise you'll need agreement, whether with the trade union or with individuals, and will that necessarily be forthcoming? Um, I don't know if you want to add anything on that, Hugh. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the law is in principle clear that you, if, if the employer tries to impose unilaterally a wage cut, you can just say no. The problem with that is that if you just say no, the employer may then dismiss you for, uh, and uh, may, have so, uh, may well succeed uh, in... Uh, avoiding any claim for unfair dismissal as a result on the ground that you're being difficult and obstructing necessary efficiency and that sort of thing. No doubt Mark Zuckerberg um, doesn't, in America there won't be so many um, employment protections, um, but the workers in this country should be able to resist that. Um, and I'm skeptical, I have to say, about the Deutsche Bank uh, measure, because um, this 5% tax be levied on workers who want the privilege of working from home, I assume that that will be people with childcare responsibilities and, and who, for whom this can make life a bit easier, though it's not perfect, obviously. Um, and uh, this, uh, and so it seems to me to sort of potentially be indirectly discriminatory against women because they're the ones who are 
particularly keen, I suspect, to take the opportunity to work from home with childcare responsibilities or other caring responsibilities. Um, and I, I know many employers have been rubbing their hands that the huge costs that could be saved by not having to have offices that, um, that when their leases come up uh, in the spring, they will all downsize so that they can just have a smaller office where only half the staff will come in at any one time and this will save them a fortune. So, from, and I'm sure Deutsche Bank is doing exactly that. Uh, they're looking at ways of uh, getting rid of office space and saving themselves some money. Whether or not they're actually serious about giving the money to people who um, are uh, the money saved, whether they're actually serious about giving it to the low paid or uh, those who are being made redundant, I, I don't know. But the obligation to make payments to people who are redundant is uh, legally mandated. And uh, I think that um, getting other workers to pay for the redundancy payments seems to me to be uh, uh, a suspect approach to offloading the employer's legal responsibility. Um, I'm just looking at my other panelists, if anybody wants to comment on that um, situation. Yeah, I think Sarah does, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just had sort of two thoughts in relation to it, really. The first was it's, it's interesting insofar as it looks as if it's some notion of solidarity. I mean, as to the legality of it, I think that's a sort of separate question, but it is presented to the employees as being some form of solidarity. And, and secondly, my concern about it would be the effect of this, as you said, on people with childcare responsibilities and the sort of the rendering invisible of people who have twin responsibilities in that sense. Um, so, that yeah, they, they were the two thoughts I had in relation to that question. But it's an interesting, interesting question. All right. Um, good. So I'm going to move on to um, another question, which is, again, an employment law sort of question, which... Um, I, uh, Astrid may have thoughts on it as well. So this is about the employer's health and safety duties when people are working at home. Uh, if you have an accident working from home, uh, does that mean the employer is not legally responsible? Um, do you want to have a go at that, Astrid? Maybe I'll chip in. Um, so there is reference in that UK guidance for teleworkers. It does give reference or does tell us a little bit about the employer's health and safety obligations. And it states there then that health and safety at work legislation applies whether or not employees are working in a conventional office or remotely. However, and this is the maybe large however, this general duty is qualified by the principle of so far as is reasonably practicable. Um, and that's from that UK guidance for teleworkers. Yes. So the, the principle, in answer to this question about health and safety, the principle is it applies to the home. And uh, I have to say LSE is a good law-abiding employer. Uh, when the lockdown came and we were all sent home, immediately sent us a questionnaire to ask whether our working conditions were satisfactory and so on, or whether we had the right sort of chairs and desks and so on, um, which uh, we all had to fill in. Um, 
I don't know what happened if you said you didn't. I think uh, I, uh, I, I pointed out that my laptop had fallen, uh, had dropped down dead. So I'm glad to say I've now got another one, which I'm using to speak to you. But um, uh, I think, so that the law on that is clear, as Astrid has said. Um, but it's the same sort of problem that Astrid was talking about in relation to working time, that it's just uh, any kind of detailed surveillance of what people are doing at home is almost certainly an unlawful invasion of their private life. Um, so employers can't really do that. They can't really check on whether the health and safety conditions are being met. Um, but there will be, I'm just thinking where the question is coming from about, um, you know, if, if you, if you uh, fall over in your kitchen at home, I think that won't necessarily be somehow work-related. That may be something that would have happened anyway. I don't suppose the employer will be held responsible for that. Um, good. Um, now, Can I just add something on that one? Yes, Thank please. You. Thank you. So, so it, I'm picking up from what Astrid and Hugh have said. It, it is a question of, of employers employees getting the balance right so if you're mindful of your legal duties as an employer for employees who are essentially lone working working from home making sure they've got what they need it and that their well-being is sufficiently managed there's a balance between checking in and not checking in too much and so picking up on Hugh's point on solidarity this is an opportunity really for for unions to be involved perhaps in making sure satisfactory homeworking arrangements are in place. So that's a, that's a way for unions to be making sure that the employees are able to enforce their rights and perhaps working collaboratively, collaboratively with employers uh, on establishing protocols for working at home. Good. Um, I've got a, another question for you, Nikki, about, about which I don't know. I, this the question is um, is uh, what what an impact is the domestic abuse bill uh, likely to have in this area? And in particular, um, will that protect women uh, working from home who are finding they cannot work from home because of domestic violence? Thanks, Hugh. And also, could I just preface my answer to that by apologising to the audience member, I think it's Stephen Blimrubber, who I, I tried to answer your question live and I pressed the wrong button. Clearly, technology is not my strong card. But the answer Stephen had asked, um, OK, I said that it's two to one, but might that be because men report at a lower rate than women? And that might well be true. But actually, the estimate comes from the crime survey. So it's not based on reports to the police that is based on survey, on interview data. Um, of course, there might still be some inaccuracy there, but, but I think it's unlikely to be as distorted as, say, reports to the police. So that was, I'm very sorry that I got that wrong. So the domestic abuse bill, I think the answer, the straight and, and limit, limited answer is, insofar as we know now, only indirectly, only indirectly. It is mainly about criminal remedies or some of these sort of hybrid criminal civil remedies like protective orders. So I guess that um, 
if you, you know, if you are able to access a protective order and make your home safer more quickly, that may enhance your ability to operate okay in the labor market. But it, it is essentially, this is one of the problems with, with law and, and the legislative process in a way, is it tends to intervene in at one level of a problem. Whereas we know that a complex issue like violence in the home is something that uh, you know really has enormous, enormously complex causes, and so you know just criminalising it, tempting that it is because it makes governments feel they've done something and they can tell their electorate that they've done something, but it's um, it's also you know it's, it's not necessarily going to sort out the problem. And just if I can add one tiny point about the diversity of victims here. And one of the latest pieces of evidence that's just come out uh, by uh, cited by one of the uh, public commissioners today is that during the pandemic, there's thought to have been a real rise in violence against older people in not just in the home, but in care homes. And so this is a, a sort of more general issue about people who don't have options of exit. Um, they're, they're highly vulnerable to, to abuse. Thanks for the questions. Good. Um, I've got a question here. Um, uh, if my employer is directing me to work from home, could I decide to work from my holiday home or another home or this the, the problem of multiple home ownership? I, it seems to me that you, you can choose to work from whatever home you want to work from and the employer can't control that. The only reservation might be in relation to completing the health and safety mm. survey uh, for each home, depending on where you happen to be at any one time. Uh, but if you've got your home in the Caribbean, I would go there right now. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy some sunshine. Now, I've got a question, though, a more serious question, I guess, for uh, Alice Cars about the future and her thoughts on that which is what impact do you foresee the events of 2020 having on the employment tribunal processes on a long-term basis? Could remote hearings be utilised to clear the backlogs? Um, and, uh, and do you think it perhaps could place a disproportionate impact upon employers? So over to you, Alice. Thank you. So on from my experience and anecdotally, I believe that tribunals are using a mixture of in-person hearings and video hearings to uh, hear cases. So even with a full tribunal panel of the judge and two wing members, those are now being conducted over video. And But I, I can't say how many hearings are being conducted in person or by video or how quickly the backlog is um, being cleared. Um, but of course, for both parties to a case, there's if a case is delayed, there is longer for the rights to be determined and longer for the successful party to receive their compensation. So a delay isn't satisfactory for anybody, which is why I think the, the use of video hearings where appropriate will help to hopefully get more cases heard uh, without delay. And I suppose the question is, do you get a sense from uh, people you might speak to at the bar whether your know, video hearings are here to stay, you know, in the long term? Uh, it sounded like they've been 
after some teething troubles, reasonably successful. Alice. I don't I don't know whether they are here to stay, but I've heard some colleagues say that judges have said at the end of hearings that they particularly liked using video hearings, perhaps not for cases with witnesses, but where there's counsel doing submissions, that that's the kind of thing that can be satisfactorily dealt with over video. Good. Thank you. Um, I've still got a few more questions here. Um, uh, I don't know if anyone feels up to this one. What about the rights of students studying from home? Uh, how about their access to technology, which I think is a big issue for, uh, particularly for uh, uh, some students at universities, but perhaps more seriously uh, for, uh, more significantly for uh, secondary school students. Um, I don't know if, if, if that's within our remit. I don't know. Sarah may have may have thoughts on that or not. Do do they have rights? I'm not sure they do. Do you want to have a go, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, efforts have been made. I think we know that efforts have been made to supply laptops and, you know, enable school children to access technology. Um, as to whether they have a right is a slightly separate question, but. I think the best we can say is that efforts have been made in many cases by local authorities to provide them with technology. Um, I think in reality, the sort of the provision has probably been very varied across the UK, but I wouldn't want to comment any further than that because I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I think we may not have special expertise in relation to that one. Um, but here's a question from someone based in Tahiti. Um, at the French University of French Polynesia, which is exotic for us. And do you think that working from home is a solution to eliminate workplace harassment? Um, so the question is whether that, I imagine we're thinking about sexual harassment or racial harassment or something of that kind uh, in between workers, which is, uh, of course, the, the potential downside of uh, pleasant presence in the workplace. Um, and although my talk was um, about the loss that we're going to suffer if we don't meet up at work uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, this will be, uh, if harassment disappears, uh, that will be something perhaps we won't bemoan the loss of. But... Um, my feeling is that it's, it's that uh, it will just take a different form. That uh, I, I don't I don't look at social media and so on. But um, I imagine that various things that are called trolling, trolling, and things like that will be equally present remotely. I, I can I can see people nodding. But uh, do you think we want to add something to that one? Um, I mean, I would, I would, I agree with you. I think it will take a different form, and I think those who are out to harass will always find a way. So I, I can't imagine that working from home will eliminate that in any in any way. It'll take place over technology instead. Um, would be my view. I agree entirely that these kinds of abuses are about power, power inequalities, and the coercion that can arise when power inequalities get embedded and they can happen across socioeconomic advantage, gender, ethnicity, age, 
physical vulnerability or, and these it's about power it's not not about some kind of particular technology of harassment now i've been asked uh, some questions about uh, uh, the organizations of workers trade unions and what what changes in the law might be needed um, and my lawyer colleagues astrid and alice may want to chip in um, uh, so my point was, I think it's going to be extremely hard for trade unions to organise people if they're not in a workplace. It's just very hard to kind of meet people and uh, talk to them and give them a leaflet and say we're thinking of forming a union and all that sort of thing. That's going to be very hard, um, and you can't sort of stand at the the gates or the entrance to uh, the building and. Uh, and with placards and so on. So that's going to be very difficult. And I think trade unions are going to have to uh, become really experts at uh, the new media, new social media, and try to uh, connect with people in through Facebook or meetings of various uh, kinds, virtual meetings. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, I think they will be... Uh, uh, they will inevitably suffer even greater declines than they've suffered already in trying to bring people together. Um, so, I think uh, I, I need to I need to look at the, the current law on the law relating to organisation and methods more carefully, just to check that everything is permitted that a union might want to do. I think it is that they can organise in these ways. Uh, the, the crucial question will be whether uh, the employer allows some sort of access through the IT system of the employer, like the email addresses and so on, which may be very hard to persuade an employer to do. I don't know if anyone wants to add to that. Ast Astrid, you're nodding, but do you want to add? I wonder as well how industrial action would work if, per if people are working from home. Sorry, that's a different question again. But yeah, I think I completely echo you, Hugh. It's all about adapting, isn't it, and organising in a different way. Um, I, yeah, I think that's all I have to add on that. I don't know if Alice, sorry, I should let you. Alice is an expert on industrial action. Yes. Well, just in picking up on that, yes, it's worth, I think, bearing in mind that it currently, if you are balloting your members for industrial action, you have to do it over uh, post and paper. Uh, there was some suggestion back when the Trade Union Act was passed in 2016 that electronic balloting be permitted, and that didn't make it into law. So that's extra difficult, having to ballot and organise a paper ballot away from the workplace or your trade union facilities office. Great. Um, I can see one last question, which I, I think I can answer, which is um, if you're working from home in a foreign country, uh, what's the tax implication? Uh, well, of course, that depends on complicated tax rules, but generally speaking, you pay the taxes where you live. Um, so that would, if you're working from home, I think you're going to pay them there. Um, so I don't know if we're all going to Monaco or somewhere like that to carry on working. Um, anyway, I must bring, bring matters to a close there and, uh, and thank our audience for their very interesting and challenging questions um, and then thank the um, speakers very much, our panellists, 
uh, who've looked at this topic of working from home from a variety of angles and introduced some very challenging ideas to us, I think. And I'm very grateful for joining me on this special event. Thank you very much.